Hello there, fair podcast listener, and thank you for downloading this episode 10 of the Emotion at Work podcast. I was reading a piece this week that says most podcasts don't get past episode 7, so I guess I've achieved that uh, that goal. Um, I hope you like what I do on this podcast. I, I work really hard um, to, to A, get some really interesting guests, and B, put some really um, useful and helpful kind of content out there. So if you do like what we do on this podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could leave me a review. If you could head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from uh, and leave us a review to tell us what you think of the podcast, that would be amazing. I'd be really, really grateful. Those reviews help, A, help me make the podcast as good as it can be, but also it helps other people find us as well. So if you could do that, that would be great. I also wanted to to share um, something as well. So we've had a previous guest on this podcast called George Uniting, where she runs um, an organisation called Trigger Conversations, and they're about kind of changing up um meeting new people so that you have more meaningful conversations more quickly so she wants to really uh, get rid of and, and get past um that superficial stuff to have more meaningful conversations to build real connections uh, and then put she puts together extraordinary evenings now trigger is turning one soon it's turning one on the 16th of october so she's having an event in london um, and you can find details of that at triggerconversations.co.uk um, so if that interests you then and you're in and around London on the 16th of October then I'd heartily recommend heading along to one of Georgie's uh, events the, the question that I ask our guest this week uh, is taken from uh, the menu of questions that Georgie puts together at one of her trigger evenings so a worthwhile place to go so let's get back to the podcast then episode 10 Somebody that I have wanted to get on from the start of, uh, of putting this podcast together. She's a co-author of one of my favourite books. Um, and yeah, I get quite excited in this one. So sit back, relax, here we go. And it is, believe it or not, episode 10. Hello, welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and today's episode is looking at how about emotion at work in everyday talk. So um, on this podcast already we've had a different a couple of different guests talking about talk if I can use the word talk as many times in one sentence. Um, So we've had a forensic linguist talking about um, the intersection of language and law and we also got into talking about formulaic language uh, we also had another guest that came on to talk about some of the rituals that we have in conversation and the conversation can, can be quite ritualized and um, her work in kind of changing that up and this podcast is going to continue to look at language but more specifically looking at spoken language and what it can tell you about identity uh, our guest today is a researcher and a lecturer at Loughborough University uh, and is the author of one of the most thumbed books in my bookcase. So one of the other podcasts I listen to is by a guy called Tim Ferriss. And one of the questions he asks his guests a lot is, um, what book have you gifted the most? And the book I've gifted the most is the book of, of our podcast guest today. Um, so I, I know that she's got a really busy, uh, she had a really busy summer. T- teaching is going to start soon. And so I'm very grateful to, to have her with us today. So I'd like to welcome this week's guest to our podcast, which is Dr. Jessica Robles. Hi, Jessica. Hi. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Good, good. Um, so normally on a podcast like this, we get the guests to tell us a bit more about kind of themselves, and that will come out as we work our way through the conversation. 
but one of our previous guests who I mentioned earlier on um, talked about the rituals and conversation. So rather than do the standard opening, I thought I'd go for a different question, if that's OK with you. All right. Fab. So I was getting, the question that came to mind for our discussion today is what makes um, a great travelling companion? Oh, wow. That is a good question. Let's see. I think it depends on the person. So if I were to answer for myself, it mm. has to be somebody who has a sense of humor about things and doesn't get too upset when things don't go their way. Okay. So, so you're thinking like pl travel plans within that or just generally? Uh, just, just general approach to life. So even if you shrink it down to a single thing that you do somewhere you've traveled, like let's say you go out to dinner, right? You don't get exactly the right table you want. The service is not quite as fast as you want. The yeah, food okay. doesn't look exactly right. It has to be, the person I'm with has to be somebody who can roll with that and still have a good time without every little upset sort of ruining the experience. Okay. <laughs> I like that. See, see, for, for me, it's, it's someone who is happy to just do nothing. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I find that I do, I do lots of things in my life. Mm. Um, but traveling is one of those where I just like to sort of sit and soak up or drink in, depending on the metaphor you want to use, <laughs> the, the, the surroundings that I'm in, you know, so, um, and, and it's something I think okay. also, uh, I don't know if it's just to do with um, having kids, but I don't get to do it as much when I travel now. So one of my favourite things I ever did was when I went to Rome with my wife mm. and we just sat in Piazza Navona for about five hours um, and we just sat and people watched and we didn't really talk to each other that much, actually. We just kind of sat and drank, well, she drank coffee, I drank beer. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just great just to sort of just be there and just enjoy the all the surroundings and everything that went with it. So that, yeah, that would, that would be something that's important to me that it's um it's okay just to sit and be with uh with the surroundings that you're in yeah that's actually why i like to travel alone a lot <laughs> oh really <laughs> <Yeah>. okay <laughs> and it is so is traveling something you do is that a big thing is that a sort of a part of what you do it's it's a huge part of my work and it's probably one of the most important priorities of my life it's the main thing i spend money on and then i sometimes don't have money to eat properly in the week but i will travel by God. <laughs> wow. And and what's been your, um, uh, I don't know if the word favourite is the right word, actually, but I can't think of it. So what's the favourite place you've been to, say, in the last year or two? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I don't know if it's favourite, but uh, a recent place that I've been to that I had not spent much time in before was Hawaii. And uh, okay. it was, you know, in summer, and so I properly took time off and I didn't do any work which is unusual for me so usually I work through my vacations as well um, mm. so that it was really nice and, uh, and you given me the link now so I'll link back into work then and do you find yourself as a researcher and someone who's interested in kind of language and identity do you find yourself sort of catching what's happening and how people are, are interacting with each other while you're away as well <laughs> Constantly, yes. Um, it's it's not the case that I, I do that because of the research I do. I think it's that I do the research that I do because I had that tendency already. Okay. So that was one of the things I was interested in. Is you know, So have you always been kind of... Have you, when, when did the fascination for for your area of, of kind of speciality start? Is, oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's been with me for a long time. So one thing that I remember is 
when I was young, if I did something wrong, sometimes I would try to work out why I'd done it wrong, and I'd realize it, was be it would be because I had interacted in sort of the incorrect way, either for some politeness rule or because of age differences. And as I got older, I became fascinated with language. I always loved reading, and I would develop these incorrect kind of theories about words and how they'd evolved. And of course, I had no idea what I was talking about or thinking about, but I was just fascinated with language and language development and language variation. And that's how I ended up getting into looking at things like communication and linguistics. Wow. Because uh, so uh, one of the uh, one of the things that always fascinated me, and I, I don't I don't know when, I, I, as in I can't put an age on it, but I, I know I was I was young enough <laughs> to realise the severity of trouble I was in. Mm. So you know, the the minute I got called Philip John, which is just <laughs> my middle name, then then yeah, that was what I would now know as a pragmatic marker of mm -hmm. you are in trouble. Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I remember modulating my responses depending on on the the way I'd been summoned. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I I knew if I had how much leeway I had, or the the amount of urgency I would need to give <laughs> to to a, to attending to or being present where I, where I was asked to be present, depending on the way I was summoned. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to tell people that part of what fascinates me about interaction is I don't feel like I'm naturally good at it. So I felt like throughout my life I've had to pay more attention to it than maybe other people and that's in the end I think made me a better interactor but has also made me wonder how is it that people know how to do this thing why does it seem yeah. so natural but actually there are all these things you have to learn and, and the um, and the experiences that you need to go through to get there so like like you were talking about just now in terms of the the times you would you would get yourself in trouble mm -hmm. or um, or you, yeah, you commit a faux pas or, uh -huh, or exactly. some description. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have a lot of examples of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then, so I guess we talked about that. So there are a few terms in there that that uh, we both introduced that maybe we should go back and explore mm. a bit more. So um, so you, uh, earlier on you talked about for politeness reasons, mm. um, and I think for for most people, politeness would be you know, kind of saying please and thank you. Mm. Um, but I think there, there's a bit more to it than that as well. Absolutely, yes. So there are a lot of things, both in the way that you phrase how you speak and also the little words that people usually think of when they think of politeness, like please and thank you. But it's a lot more than that. Um, you can see that language is often kind of marked or more complex when people are being polite, especially in English. So rather than saying, pass the salt, you would say something like, would you be so kind as to pass the salt? I mean, I don't know how many people would actually say that, right? But that's an example yeah. of the kind of distinction. Um, and then there's also has to do with tone of voice and sometimes adding things like sir or, or ma'am to what you're saying. So it's, it's much more complicated than just remembering certain words. And in fact, you can use words that sound polite, but actually do it very impolitely. So if you say it sarcastically, for instance, mm -hmm. um, and say thanks, right, you're not really being polite. So it's oversimplistic to say that it's just add this word and suddenly you're polite. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And and, and I guess that's so uh, one of um, 
one of the things that I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before or not. But <laughs> one of, one of the things that my wife says to me a lot is, "Are you putting the kettle on?" <laughs> That's a great one. Like, oh, would you like a cup of tea then, darling? Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the emphasis and the and the, the elongated darling at yes, the end. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, and, and so and, and those those things that people might do then in terms of either to be polite or impolite. Mm. Um, what could be some of the reasons for doing that? So you mentioned again when you were talking earlier on, you mentioned about age differences. Mm-hmm. Can that be one of the reasons why people might do something like that? You know, if they're speaking to a and someone who's older than them or... Oh, yeah, uh, different ages. Generally, status in society is something that we mark by doing politeness, and so it, it could be that age is a part of that. It could be your position in social situations, or it could be um, in your workplace, you know, the person who's the boss and so forth. So somebody might use more politeness strategies with, with somebody who is superior or senior, maybe. Yeah. Maybe senior is a better word than superior. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and then, and does that, because one of the things that, again, we've, we've touched on briefly on this podcast before is a notion of face. Mm-hmm. Yes. So do, does that, you know, does that link in with, with some sort of some of the aspects of face as well, would you say? Yeah, well, the, the use of this idea of face is actually really, really helpful. Um, so it comes from Irving Goffman, you might have talked about um, mm-hmm. on your previous one. And so he described that there's this mechanism where we're sort of attentive to how the other person appears to the world or, or how they appear to, to society and social situations. And so when somebody, say, does something wrong, like they make some sort of gaffe, then we try to save their face. If, if we're interacting with other people, we're trying to maintain our own face, a sort of impression that we want others to get of us. And so okay. politeness works both ways with that because it, it both kind of shows a respect for the face of the other but also presents ourselves as respectable people and respectful people. So because what well, because we do those politeness things exactly. it then communi- it communicates that we are respectful yeah, and attentive and, attentive, and thoughtful yeah. and all these good things yeah. Okay. Um So is 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 face something we do consciously then? Is that like a Well, whether it's conscious or unconscious, who can really know? We we can't quite see inside people's minds to confirm that but it's certainly something that people aren't necessarily aware of Um, although if you point it out to people they would probably say oh yeah of of course I do that right they'll give some explanation Um, but oftentimes when people first learn about the concept of face they think it's not something they do all the time they think it must be something that they only turn on when they're not comfortable or when they're with strangers or something but actually face is is something that is with us all the time it's not something that is necessarily overt and deliberate, but it's still something that could be kind of always underlying our interactions with others. Even when we're very comfortable and casual and just hanging out with our friends, we still care how we appear to them, and that's what face is about. Okay. Okay. And because I, I, um, earlier on I talked about, or in my introduction I think I talked about the work that you do with identity. Mm-hmm. So a, a face and identity, are they, are they like almost synonymous with each other? Are they the same thing or are they, are they slightly different? I think they're, I mean, this is an ongoing conversation actually, but they're very, very similar and they're sort of like just different ways of looking at something. So identity is a term that we usually use in a slightly 
different way to talk about sort of characteristics of a person or or how they enact themselves in a variety of ways, whereas face is a little bit more focused on the relational dimension between people. Okay, so so identity almost encompasses something a bit broader, whereas face uh, face is often more concerned with the 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 interaction that's happening there and then, or is uh, it? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay, because I, I was wondering if um, kind of uh, so I, I get quite so I'm going to, I'm taking our conversation to a space I wasn't going to take it, but there you go. We'll <laughs> just we'll just we'll just run with that. Yeah, because I, I get interested in in how how the the interlink between face and time mm. so even though i might be having an interaction with um so let's use the example i used early on so um so my wife says to me are you putting the kettle on mm-hmm. and at that moment i understand what she's trying to communicate to me is that she would like a hot beverage mm-hmm. normally tea um <laughs> But which variety of tea, whether it's you know breakfast tea or or a herbal tea or something like that, I don't know. But <laughs> but but also, I'm th- that statement brings with it all of those statements that she's made in the past, right. and, and and any associated meaning that I've brought with it. So the fact that I'd rather she would just say, <laughs> "I like a cup of tea." Um, but instead she continues so even though I've said to her in the past can you not just ask me if you, you know, if you want one just say I want a cup of tea and I'll quite happily make you a cup of tea right um, but she continues to kind of use that um, that the indirectness or the, mm-hmm. the the politeness in it because she doesn't want to um, stop me from uh, my, my interpretation is she doesn't right. want to stop me from whatever I'm doing so I'm right. doing something else whether even if that's just watching TV or reading you know the fact that I've then got to stop what I'm doing and do and make the tea instead. She, she almost wants to reduce the impact that she's having on the inconvenience that she might add. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I still bring with me all of this stuff from the past, and it still makes me, you know, it makes me grumpy. Not so, yeah, you know, it doesn't make me angry, <laughs> but but I kind of walk into the kitchen going, oh, she just remember asked me to make a cup of tea. Um, does that does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a really interesting dynamic between the things that happen in the moment of the situation and the sort of histories people have with each other. And that's one of the reasons that I initially got into looking at relationships primarily um, and sort of the relational dimension of talk is precisely because I would walk through grocery stores and see people interacting and, you know, they might blow up at each other and get into an argument over what looked to me like nothing. But it's, of course, because there's a whole history there of previous interactions that they've had about those things and trying to figure out and account for how you can explain that without all that history is, is sort of the problem of, of analysis in a way. So you're trying to deconstruct from a single interaction, what are all the things here that I can't see? And can I still make a, con- a convincing case for why they are involved in what's going on? Hmm. So it is... Um... Uh, again, I'm biased because I'm in. You know, one of the things I you know, I get fascinated by with is is emotion. Mm-hmm. So, is is emotion almost? Oh, that's, no, that's the wrong question. Different question. <laughs> um, is it common for emotion to be present when those relational aspects are happening? I mean, and I know I, that's a loaded question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think 
I, I think that's off. I mean, emotion is a resource, right? It's it's a thing that we can sort of present and perform for people in order to do something in the interaction. So when we want to be taken seriously, for example, we might raise our voice in certain ways that are associated mm-hmm. with anger. If we want to be um, sort of have sympathy, right? We might allow our voices to tremble a bit more in ways that are associated with vulnerability and sadness. It's not the case that we're all doing this, you know, in some hyper-conscious intentional way, but these are resources that we've absorbed and learned how to deploy much more strategically than we realize. Uh, so, so I, I just want to sort of nip back for a second in that you, you mentioned when you said that emotions are a resource that we can... Uh, something you said something and perform and it was the perform bit that got that got my attention yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so tell me a bit more about that so what's interesting about emotion is that people tend to see emotion as something that is sort of purely physiological right it starts in your body you have no control over it when it it sort of overtakes you um and floods out of you as as goffman would say but um Oftentimes, emotion can be deployed in a way that actually has a function. And we see, for example, in people who are crying, they, they tend to stop crying at points where somebody else would interject. And you see this with very, very young children. So it's not something that people learn to do really late in life or after they've had hundreds of interactions. It's something mm-hmm. that little kids will do. So they'll sort of do the crying, trying to get the attention. And as soon as they can tell that their parent is about to speak, the crying quiets down. Uh, it's something you can test out later, maybe with your own kids, if they're still in the crying phases. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, the youngest is four. So oh, yeah, still, well, there you go. We, <laughs> we, we get we get we get faux crying. You know, well, we get we get the yeah. faux cry. Well, a faux cry might just really be a um, a cry that hasn't been learned to to do very um, convincingly yet, <laughs> as opposed to cries that happen, you know, out of out of pure pure pain. But even that, you know, it's it's still a, a surprisingly learned response compared to what we think it is. I've never thought about it in that way. I've, I've, I've never thought about the. Um, uh, sorry, I've not. I've never thought about crying and and the um, and the allowing space for the interjection. I've thought about it from lots of other ways, but mm. I've not thought about it from a crying point of view actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing, um, and in a way, it makes it even more interesting when you do see situations where people are are sort of so crying so hard that they almost literally can't speak because it's it's sort of crossed over into something else at that point. But that's very, very rare. Um, most of our social lives are filled with a kind of crying that actually we have much more control over than we might realize. <laughs> hmm. So do you think that, uh, so do you think, and or is there, do you, are you aware of any research that, cause I, uh, so if I just stick with that for a moment, what, what I wonder is, and I suppose I'm bringing some personal experience into it. Yeah. So, if if I'm if I'm crying and then I I I notice that somebody is attending to that in whatever way, mm. so I've got so I've got their attention or they or they've stopped what they're doing or whatever that is. Um, I wonder if there's a if there's a, a sequence a communicative sequence that leads up to me leaving the gap for them to speak. Right. Yeah. So usually it's you know the same way as any kind of sequence in interaction where you 
sort of design what you're saying, and then you can tell when it's a relevant moment for somebody to respond to you, and and all sorts of things like crying, laughing, whatever. They're still part of that sequence. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because I'm I'm quite I, I I get quite fascinated with um, with things like turn taking with. Um, how people share the floor with each other. Um, I especially like news announcements. I really love news announcements. So we'll, well, I, I know I'm chucking a load of terminology out, which we'll come back to in a minute. Um, but I've just never—you've really got me thinking because I've, I've never considered it from a uh, in in the in the interaction around crime before. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something for me to think about. Um, so that um, that systemicness then. So, mm-hmm. I, and again, I've just thrown a few terms out, so let's pick up on one. Let's go for news announcements because I said I like them. So, Because uh-huh. um, I, I I find the, the interaction between sort of surprise as an emotion, mm. and I'll, I'll, leave that, I'll leave that term broad for a moment, I'll come back to it, but the interaction between news announcements and surprise and, and faux surprise. Yeah. You know, because if, if I think about the work, say, by... I'm a huge fan of Paul Ekman's work, mm-hmm. and, you know, his... His his research has suggested that surprise is to do with um, something occurring that is sudden and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Now, if we then link that to the idea of news announcements, which, and you can correct me if I get this, please correct me if I get this wrong, is that in a lot of cases, people will announce that they, they will pre-announce that they've got some news to share with things like, are you sitting down? <laughs> or I've, had, I've got something on my mind or... Yes this strange thing happened to me today mm-hmm. you know so so you've got that that kind of pre-announcement yeah. which then and if i link that then into when the people then kind of go oh really or wow or yeah. those sorts of things i'm like is that is that genuine surprise because that wasn't <laughs> that can't be sudden and unexpected anymore because right. you knew you knew something was coming now, yeah. I, I guess what it what it is may have still been unexpected right but but yeah so i i find that quite interesting um, you know, is it, are they, is it, yeah, is well, it no surprises or not? That's the great thing about a pre-announcement actually is because it, it basically tells the other person, you better react to this with surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, need, you need to be surprised. Now. Yeah, yeah, which, which is a really good way to ensure that the other person is going to basically give you the, some kind of response that you want. Uh, you mm. can imagine, you know, um, somebody not doing any kind of preface or, or any indication, I don't know how this would happen, maybe they're texting and just saying, I'm pregnant, right? And then yep. the other person is like, is this a good thing, a bad thing? Like, what's going on? Because yeah. if you don't know the person very well, you might not know. And so saying, you know, the greatest thing happened to me, or you'll never guess, and using yeah. a certain tone of voice and so forth, it helps the other person out so that they can respond in the way that you were hoping, maybe, and get the conversation going in the direction you want, as opposed to stopping it short and going, oh, now it's awkward. Yeah. Because you'll have those associated paralinguistic clues, don't you? Exactly. Those, those, non, those non-verbal bits that will tell you, you know, the is that are you sitting down delivered mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with a great big smile and, yes. and a slightly excited tone, or is it <laughs> delivered with a, um, um, yeah, is it delivered with something different? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So news announcements is is one example. Um. What other sort of examples might be? So you know we. My a lot of my listeners are in the workplace. So, what other um, kind of sequences might they spot in the in the interactions that they have, or some common ones? Do you think? Um, well, there's 
invitations to do various things.、Uh, so if、okay. you if you want to ask somebody to do something, you, whether it's in the workplace or for a social engagement, usually that also will have some sort of pre sequence involved with it. So you'll say, you know, are you free Friday or、um, Do you have some spare time later today? And then you get some sort of request or invitation, either to do something or to maybe go with you somewhere. And usually,、okay. again, that's that's a, a that pre sequence is a really nice way of of getting that person to sort of be on board with a possible thing that's coming up. When somebody says, you know, are you free later today? You know that they're about to make a claim on your time in some way. Yeah. So yeah, you can、okay. already start to sort of anticipate that, and then you know that helps you formulate a response. And so, is there is there almost some、uh, and and again, this might not be on a conscious level, but、mm-hmm, there's some、right. there's some complicit face saving stuff happening. Yeah, face is definitely. I would say, I mean, according to Goffman, anyway, face is is sort of an explanation you can apply to all of these things potentially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because if so, I've got I've got something that I want you to do that might take, I don't know. Recorded.、Uh, let's use. I, I almost want to go and use a real example. So I've got something that's going to take your time. Like I want to have an hour of your time to record a podcast. <laughs>、um, you know. So then I'll,、uh, I'll then use the pre. You know, the pre-invitation. Did you call it a pre-invitation?、Uh, you could. Yeah, it could be a, or pre-request.、Uh, pre-request. That、know. was it. Yeah.、Um, yeah. Just and then, not, but then I'll judge on your response. You know, I use the way that you that you might immediately respond to that. Request to modulate how much of your time I might ask for. Exactly. So, if, so if your response is, "Oh,、um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah," I've got some time. Okay, <laughs> so I won't, I won't, I won't ask for an hour anymore. Right, right. I'm only, I'm only going to ask for half an hour. Exactly.、Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. Um. And、uh, any others? So, so we've had、um, pre-requests. Um, news announcements. Any other common ones? Oh,、uh, I mean, there's a gazillion.、Um, I guess this is maybe a slightly boring one in a way, but the most common one probably is just greetings. So, anytime、okay. you open an interaction with anyone, whether it's a service encounter or a telephone call or seeing a friend, you usually have to do this interesting little exclamation of the fact that you're opening a conversation before you do anything else. Uh, yeah. And and that has to sort of be reciprocated in some way, and then you can move forward. And this is something that I sometimes forget to do in certain situations. So、uh, I commonly will write an email, and then stop before I send it, and go back to the beginning, and then add a greeting because I've forgotten to add that part. And that's doing a little bit of I think politeness work,、okay. recognizing yeah, yeah. that people expect to be greeted and not just treated like machines that you're going to give instructions to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I guess those things will be modulated as well by the relationship that individuals have with each other. So depending on、um, on how well people do or don't know each other, the there may be more or more or less of an inclination or a need to 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 add some of those things in.、Uh, you know, I think to some extent that's true, but I don't know that it always lines up in the way you'd expect. So I think a common thing is that we assume that people we're closer to will forgive us a lot, but actually sometimes the people we're closest to will demand the most. And so one of the things that I learned painfully over the years is with my partner when he comes home, I have to stop what I'm doing and ask him how his day has gone. 
And that's something that I explicitly had to teach myself because otherwise I would just keep working and maybe eventually say, you know, are you hungry or something? Or I might give、okay. them a hug, but I would not sort of do that ritual of seeing how a person's day was, stopping what I'm doing, making sure I'm attending. There's a whole kind of ritual that you have to go through to reaffirm that yes, you're you're focused on this relationship and that is more important than anything else that's going on.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was not going to let be let off the hook <laughs> for that particular thing. <laughs> Because I, I find an example like that really interesting from from the perspective of、um, you've got one individual who would perceive the the non communication, if that's an alright label to give it,、um, <laughs> as a、um, you know as a as, a, as something to be frustrated by or, or annoyed at,、mm-hmm. and then and then for another,、um, then it's it's just okay because there's there's no negative meaning to it. It just is what what it is. Right. Because I, 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 we've talked a, a little bit earlier on about how, like, how talk or interaction can be a way to perform or to inform to perform and or inform people about emotions that we're expected to do or we want them to do.、Mm-hmm. Um, and and I then get interested in like so does does emotion shape talk or does、mm-hmm. talk shape emotion?、Mm-hmm. Or is it a bit of both? I I think it's definitely a bit of both. I think. As I was sort of indicating earlier, I think we tend to overemphasize the idea that emotion shapes talk, and、mm. um, and I like to kind of look at how talk actually is shaping the emotion. But it's a it's a reciprocal relationship. So yeah, they're they're working together really. And I guess that can come down to to specific language use as well. So、oh, yeah. if、um, so, if I think about a.、Um, So, uh, uh, if I think about workplace interaction that I've had in the last couple of years,、mm. um, I was asked to do some thinking on a on a project or a challenge that the organisation had, and I came back with、um, with with my thinking,、mm-hmm. and the and the response I got was, "Phil, we're not trying to bore the ocean here." <laughs> what did that? What does that mean? <laughs> so it it means like when、um, we're trying to. That that would involve an awful lot of energy, you know. Ah, so to 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 to, to, yes, bo- to, 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 to yeah, to boil the ocean would take you know that、right. that's, that's that's like a massive task. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so as a, a and then a, as a as a metaphor, I was, it it really kind of knocked me for six. Yeah. Um, and and I I I felt myself getting both angry and、mm. so I I was a mixture of angry, scared, and sad all together、yeah. wrapped up into one. Yeah, because I was I was annoyed because、mm-hmm. um, both at the statement and at myself. So I was annoyed at the statement, you know, to be like, you know, you're you're disparaging my work.、Mm. I was annoyed at myself because I, you know, I'd got it wrong. Oh, whether、yeah. you know, I know that's a yeah, that's always down to subjective. But you know, I, I'd got it wrong because I'd done the wrong thing.、Mm. Um, I was then scared because I'd done the wrong thing, and has that then kind of impacted my credibility or my reputation?、Mm. Um, And then also sad at the at the loss of time that I'd you know put in to do it, but also at the fact that I hadn't delivered on what you know the other person wanted for me.、Um, yeah. And I remember the person that made the statement was then really surprised at my response. They were like, "Well, no, 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 no! I was just saying that you've just taken you thinking of you know a little bit bigger than what I needed it to be." And I was like, "No, that's a complete contrast." <laughs> Just now, you saw bore the ocean, and now you're saying it's just a little bit. You know, you're thinking a little bit broader than you needed than it needed to be. Yeah. And, and then I was like, well, what is it? Is it this or is it that? Yeah.、Um, See, did you receive that over 
in writing, or did you? Was that a face-to-face -face conversation? It was a face-to-face -face conversation. Mm, so that yeah, that is really interesting because you would think that if somebody meant it sort of tongue-in-cheek, that that would come across in the way that they'd said it. Yeah, and it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Right. Well, I mean, that's sort of the little the, the puzzle of of human interpretation, right? Is that you don't ever know exactly how somebody really intended something. I mean, communication is exactly something we have to do because we can't read each other's minds. So you'll never really know if they meant it that way or not, or or if they merely backtracked and realized, ooh, maybe I came across too strong and need to modify this in some way. Yeah, and and. Yes, I agree. Because <laughs> that, cause that, fe that feedback loop is, you yeah. know, you can only work with so much of uh, the information that's available. You mm -hmm. know, so you, you, what what was what could have been meant in an innocuous way, yeah, um, and and genuinely meant, you know, with no malintent behind it. Exactly. I, you know, I heard as a as a you know real strong kind of challenge to to the effort, energy, work, and everything else that I'd put into it. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm sure I brought with me some historical stuff. You know, there, I'm sure there was some there were some occasions that I've had in the past where I've done similar pieces of work and it hadn't um, hit the right spot for want of a better phrase um, and it, uh, it, it, I was recalling all of those aspects as well I would imagine I don't know for sure but yeah. right yeah hmm I think that you know this this really opens up two ways that can help with interaction, which is when we're reflecting on our own interactions, is, is one thing is whenever you say something, to think through all the possible ways the other person could interpret it. So rather than just saying, oh, I intended this, therefore they're going to take it that way, you know, from the perspective of another person, you can say, is, is this going to be taken the wrong way? Could this be taken the wrong way? Can mm -hmm. I ensure that that's less likely and, and that they will hear what I meant to say? And from somebody else's perspective, right, the, so the person kind of hearing the statement on the other end to think, what are all the interpretations that I could make of this, you know, rather than just the one that seems to strike me right off the bat? Um, because I think it's absolutely the case that when people misunderstand each other, it's often because they've jumped to the first kind of reaction they've had to a thing without thinking and stopping and thinking, mm, maybe there are other th ways that I could see this. Hmm. And, and you talked about misunderstandings in one of your recent papers, is that right? Uh, yes, yes. Yes, yeah, so... And, and, sorry, go on. Uh, no, I was just going to say that's, you know, something that was related to what I was saying is that we can also strategically misunderstand each other or um, use, it, use misunderstanding not as something that is a simple, oh, I didn't literally understand, but that you can kind of act or present yourself as though you didn't understand somebody else. Oh, tell me more about that. So one thing that I've always been interested in is, is disagreement and conflict. And I, usually I look at very, very little kind of conflicts. And one of the things that misunderstanding can do in a conflict is it can treat what's going on not as a conflict, but rather as something where you have simply misunderstood what the other person's saying. And it's a way of sort of getting out of having to disagree about something. And so I think it's something that you can use if you're in an interaction that you don't want to go sour or if you're in an interaction that you don't need to go off on this tangent, right, and get into an ideological argument about it. But you can kind of just sort of act as though, oh, it was a simple misunderstanding. We just use different words or, you know, I think we're talking about the same thing, but we, we really just don't hear each other. You know, there's lots of different okay. kind of things people can say that 
suggests that they don't really disagree, but that they simply don't understand each other.、Mm. And sometimes that's what you need to do because not all battles are worth fighting. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and, and so, and I guess you're.、Uh... When I say you, I don't necessarily mean you in that, but I, right. I, the, what, <laughs> the generic what, what the, view. <laughs> yes, what, what, the, what those in the interaction there、um, are doing is is a is a reframe,、yes. I, and that could be from a from a few different perspectives. It could be from an emotion perspective. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Um, I've had many conversations in my time where you know, someone's come to me and said, "Oh, so and so sent me this email. Have a read of it." Um, so and so said this to me. What do you think?、Um, and, and as part of that, I, and I guess the, the difference is this, this is out of the interaction. So this is you know, post it happening.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I'll get often I'll ask you know I'll do some of that reframing work to say well okay so that's how you've that's how you've heard it or you, that's how you've received it.、Mm-hmm. How else could you you know what else could they, what else could they mean when they say that exactly? You know, what what、yeah. else could what could be another interpretation、mm-hmm. of 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 that? Yeah.、Know? So you you,、um, you know they yeah they asked you to do a piece of work you did it and then they said we didn't we, I didn't want you to bore the ocean <laughs> what else could, what else could they have meant by that you know, exactly else, yeah yeah been,、um, yeah what else could be could be happening what else could be going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Mm. and and are they would they be classes sort of from a、uh, from a、uh, discourse analysis. Or conversation analysis. I get confused which one it might be because I know they're <laughs> slightly different.、Um, would they? Would that be a repair? Are, are, are people, is that as using misunderstanding misunderstanding as a repair? Kind of yeah. So yeah, I mean, re- repair can be on understanding. So you can repair things that aren't necessarily about sort of content misunderstanding. For example, if you just didn't hear somebody, but、um, yes, one thing that you can repair is is an understanding, or you can sort of. Purport to be repairing a misunderstanding, when、yes. actually you might be kind of dodging an argument. And and what other sort of repairs do you, are there then? So you said there, so you could repair understanding,、um, and hearing. So if、okay. somebody says something and you literally don't hear it, then you can sort of ask them to say it again.、Um, okay. Or you can also repair sort of speaking. So when people restart what they're saying or reformulate what they're saying, or when you ask somebody else to sort of Re-explain something because you、okay. didn't, you know, quite understand it or something. Okay, and and, and a, a repair is like a linguistic term where there's been some form of misunderstanding or、uh, or the communication hasn't been as clear as.、Um... It's, yeah, it's meant to sort of fix troubles in in the progress of of the sequence that you're trying to to make happen. So you know, it's、okay. it's the kind of thing that you need to fix before you can move forward. Okay. And 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 I.、Hmm. So the, I'm I'm really interested then in that in the strategic misun the, the strategic use of misunderstanding、mm-hmm. because you're you're almost in, you're by using by saying it you're implying that you need to fix something right you, know, you need to, you need to do a repair yeah but your reasons for doing so are 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 different to the to the to the action of doing it. So you're you're doing a repair because you want to get out of that conversation, or you don't want to. It's not somewhere you want to go, or it's, it's not a battle worth fighting.、Um, so、yeah. you're you're repairing, but for more strategic reasons than transactional reasons. Yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. I, one of the examples that I I have in the paper、um, is where some friends 
um, are having dinner, and one of them is relating a conversation. Am I allowed to swear on this program? You are, yes. Okay. <laughs> so one one of the um, one of the people in the interaction is claiming that she overheard two people interacting, and that one of them said "fuck me" to the other person. And she presents it as though it was a request for sex, and these two people are married to other people, not to each other. So it's it's supposed to be a okay. funny thing, but it's a little bit taboo and dicey um, in the context of that conversation. And so the other person in the interaction, who's one of these people she's claiming had this interaction, says, "No, no, no! I said fuck me." So she reframes it and repairs it into something that is more like a, an expression of dismay because she'd found that they were out okay. of line. Um, and so the the all of the people in the interaction collaborate to basically make it as a mishearing or or sort of a misunderstanding on the okay. basis of having misheard these two words, rather than say you know a disagreement um, about you know things like people's relationships or having to get into you know whether these people are attracted to each other or not. Right. So they avoid having to sort of deal with what could be a difficult, awkward conversation by just saying, "Oh no, no, you misheard that." Okay. Okay, that's a good example. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, because I I can. Uh, hmm. So one of the things that that I that I talk about um, is the use of strategic ambiguity. Yes. Um, so part part of the part of the work I do is you know, yes, it's an emotion, but it's also into deception as well. Yeah. And for me, there's a there's a big spectrum of you know. Of deception. So in, in that example that you've just given, I'm like, has everybody just complied with? <laughs> has there just been like a complicit, um, a complicit reframing of the tr- of the truth to something that is just more socially acceptable? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's most of social life, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so yes, I think yeah. As, as, as almost almost look at me look at putting lots of <laughs> linguistic markers in um oh, see on a on a podcast with a linguist see? Yeah. The, the, the the meta analysis uh-huh. of of language is just insane yeah um uh you know because deception oils the wheels you know so the right. if you know the it just, yeah, it just does. You know, even right at the start of this podcast, we talked, you know, we you talked about greetings earlier on, um, off air. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned to you how I'm, you know, struggling with some health issues at the minute. But yet, when you asked me how I was at this, you know, I asked you how you were at the start of the podcast. You said you were okay, and you said <laughs> how are you, and I said yeah. I'm okay. And actually, I'm, you know, I am, but I'm not. So right. that's um, a that's a famous um, work by Harvey Sachs called "Everyone Has to Lie." It's it's like a section of his lectures, and mm. basically it's exactly about the how are you question and how you have to say a certain thing in social situations, no matter what the actual facts of the matter are. Yeah, and and they you know they they work and they 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 you know they you have that they have that social lubricant kind of nest to them because mm-hmm. they allow people to interact and transact um, smoothly. Yeah, but they're not nece- yeah it's not necessarily always true, and and I get I'm guessing sorry go on. Oh, I was just going to say that, yeah, Sachs makes that exact point that in a close relationship um, where the, the context of the conversation is we're here to have a serious conversation, you would absolutely never get let off the hook for saying, I'm fine. Mm. Especially if it was clear you weren't. Yeah. And, and uh, I think about some of the more maybe uh, formal conversations that might happen in mm. the workplace around things like, 
um, you know, sort of whether they're called different things in different kind of contexts, I suppose. We might have like one, formal one-to-one discussions mm. with, you know, your manager or members yes. of your team, or there might be, you know, performance reviews or appraisals or, um, you know, wh- where where that that tr- that that exchange of how are you on fine, thanks, how are you on fine, mm-hmm. um, if that was done in the, you know in the in the office around the rest of the team, then it could work in that way. But then if you translate it, you change the context and put it into one of those other settings, so uh, a one to one you know meeting with just the two of you in an office or. Uh, you know out walking around a lake or on a park bench or wherever it might be actually mm-hmm. it that context then changes the yes. um i don't know if the rules is the right word yeah, it just well, changes the, the, the expectations permissions. yeah 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 because yeah. Yeah, i get fascinated by the the uh, by the notion of allowable contributions so mm-hmm. you know where the context will uh, where the context defines what you are and aren't allowed to say yes and sometimes you have very formal ones, like um, in a in a courtroom or mm-hmm. in a in an in, in, a, in a job interview, those sorts of things. There are you know the general stuff. So I think about a job interview as an example. In in general, you're not allowed you're you are not allowed to ask questions of the organisation who are interviewing you until the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not so if, if mid interview you were to you were to ask a question of your interviewers then that would most likely be a faux pas unless mm-hmm. there, unless there's been some explicit yeah. um you know consent at the beginning to say if you've got any questions at any time then just ask exactly but, but generally speaking you know you you're not allowed to make that contribution until the interviewer or interviewers have exhausted all of their questions that they want to ask and then you're allowed mm-hmm. to to do so yeah exactly mm. and then if i think about map that out to other interactions mm. um especially in groups or teams um you know, say team meetings or if it's a board meeting those sorts of things like i get really fascinated by who who is and isn't allowed to contribute on what mm. so I was, I was a fly on a wall once for a in an organization where the hr director started talking about the financial performance of the organization mm. and the finance director took a huge affront to that oh. you know you want you know you you don't talk you can't talk about the numbers you don't know you know you can't you talk about the P&L and those oh, sorts of things, you know, because in, in their in their kind of perspective on it, that was their, they were, they're the contributions that the FD makes. The, the HRD can't, can't talk about them or present them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is very implicit, even in more formal organizations, right? It's not like there's somewhere written in your yeah, job no description, manual. right? Yeah. <laughs> you just sort of have to learn sometimes because somebody tells you, takes you aside, or or you learn by doing it wrong and seeing how people react. Hmm. And um, have you ever committed any? Have you, have you done any um, any sort of faux pas that you look back on now and go, "Oh, how did I not know?" Or how did I miss that? All the time. All the time. I mean, so there are two famous ones. I say famous in my own personal life. Famous for me. Um, hmm. The first one is the is one that happened when I was very, very young, where I was in the backyard and my mother was speaking to a neighbor and I saw that the neighbor's bra was visible through the back of her shirt. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's not so, somebody not so, wanting to have their underwear visible, right? So I, I walked up to them and I tried to be polite because I knew about politeness and how you shouldn't interrupt adults. And I waited for a chance to speak. And then I said as, as politely as I possibly could, excuse me, but your bra's showing. And my mother got very angry at me, and she thought that was quite rude, and 
I was very upset and I couldn't figure out what I'd done wrong. And I, I look back on that and I think that that's probably mm. where my interest in sort of like everyday morality began is what are these sort of rules that we have to follow in order to be seen as good people? How do we protect, you know, the sanctity of other people's identities by treating them in the right way? And how, do, how is it that something that seems good to one person seems like an affront to another? So that's, that's one very early gaffe I had, but you, mm. know, you might forgive me because I was four. Uh, the second one is somebody had, I'd had a long conversation with somebody at a party over the course of probably almost an hour, and a big part of that conversation was about the fact that he couldn't eat sugar. Uh, about an hour later, we were cleaning up the party, so we were helping kind of put things away, and there was a whole plate of cupcakes left and I held the plate out to offer him the cupcakes and he made this expression of dismay and said you're mean and I of course in that instance I realized what had happened is that I had forgotten yeah. the content of that conversation in that moment and done something that I thought was kindly but actually is kind of a cruel thing to do to somebody who can't eat sugar um, and I still don't know how I could have responded in that conversation in a way to kind of save it because either way right I was in a dilemma if I admitted that I had forgotten, then I had actually forgotten like a whole section of a conversation, conversation. that really you should yeah, yeah. remember. And, and yet, if I didn't admit that, then I'm still being a jerk, so it was a lose-lose. <laughs> yeah, because either you, either you say, well, actually, you're because the risk is then the implication, if you've forgotten that important thing about me as an individual, if you like, if you just forgotten the whole conversation, right, exactly. you, didn't pay, you exactly. didn't pay any attention to me at all for that <laughs> exactly. whole hour that we were talking. Yeah. Or, yeah, you, you are just, you're just a meanie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah I, I think about it all the time still oh so you, you remind one of the uh so you reminded me of, of one of mine which is also about holding out food so there was someone <laughs> i used to work with who um who said they were uh, see look i'm even framing it now they said they were alert they said they were allergic to bananas mm. and i was like really really <laughs> you can't be allergic to bananas what well, i don't remember that is so um, one day I ate a banana and I put it in a plastic cup on my desk. And then 24 hours later, when that banana was particularly smelly, mm. um, she came down and she sat on the desk behind me. And I asked her, so I turned around to face her. She still had it back to me. And I said, oh, Emma, just turn around a second. And she turned around and I shoved it. Right, I shoved this, this cup with a 24-hour-old banana in oh. it right, un, right under her nose. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> And I, I, I thought I was being, I, I knew I was being a bit mean, but I thought I was being like mean and a bit funny. Mm. And oh my goodness me, it was just, oh, it, was, it took me at least a three weeks to get to repair that. <laughs> oh no! A, you know, profuse apology. Yeah. Absolute, you know, because I, I, I thought I didn't think it was a thing. I, no. I just thought, you know, well, I, this... she said she was allergic to bananas. <laughs> To me, this is actually the, the fundamental problem of communication is that people are different and we have such a hard time putting ourselves in other people's places that we can't quite believe how different people can be, even down mm -hmm. to really tiny things. So I don't know, you probably know who David Mitchell is. He has, um, he has a YouTube program called David Mitchell's Soapbox where he just rants about random things. And he, no. on one of the, oh, he's so funny. That's fine. And I, he, I, now, I now want to go find him. No, you should. Oh, yeah. But one, one of the rants he goes on is um, how people uh, 
have differences of preference. And he starts out saying, you know, oh, I understand that people have different preferences in taste. Like, I love bacon. You don't like bacon. Okay. Whatever people have different tastes, but then he talks about how there are certain kinds of tastes that he just cannot believe, and he he thinks it's wrong. So on certain movies, if you don't agree with me, you're just wrong, right? Like he won't permit it. And then he actually comes around to saying, actually, deep down, I feel this way about food as well. I don't feel that it's actually possible for anyone to dislike bacon. It can't be possible. And likewise, it's not possible for people to actually like rhubarb. You must be lying to me. <laughs> And and I think that he's he's really on to something there. We there's a little bit of something in us that almost suspects people must be lying if they're not seeing the world in the same way we are. And I think、mm. that even though we're talking about something very very tiny when we talk about you know food or even something like allergies, it has implications for everything.、Um, I think it's it's basically the fundamental. Challenge of humanity is is getting past that that weird thing inside of us that can't quite believe that somebody can be different in that in a really serious way. And, and I, I think if I think about that in the context of the workplace as well, I,、mm. I, I wonder if the workplace it's even harder too,、yeah. because、um, especially if you've got.、Um, Or is it especially? I don't know if it is especially, <laughs> but I, I guess so. I, I'm thinking back to occasions where there are two people that have the same job title,、mm-hmm. you know. So, so essentially, their job is the same. Yeah.、Um, but they might go about it very differently.、Mm-hmm. Um, and the the need for for and I'm using others in a broad way because I've had、mm-hmm. experiences of both. So of say both, I've had experiences of many different. So it could be that the, the a manager sees their two members of their team who have the same job doing it differently, and therefore wants them both to do it the same. Could also be that you know if you've got person A and person B, person A does it in in this way, and person B does it differently. So they compete with each other to get the other one to conform to their way of doing mm, whatever、yeah. the whatever the whatever the job is. Yeah.、Um, but when, yeah, when you're, I, I guess what I'm saying is when you're when you're in the workplace, you're often put into a box of the role that you do, and、yeah. that then forms part of your identity. Yes. Yes. And then people will identify. Others will identify things with the box that you are in. So if you are a finance director, or if you are a um, uh, a, a, a road cleaner, if you are、mm-hmm. a bin emptier, if you are a security guard, you know wh- whatever that whatever that role is that you've been given as part of your job, you will then others will project expectations onto that. Exactly. And then if you act out, if you act out of line with those expectations. Even though what you're doing may be perfectly appropriate and achieve the same outcomes or goals,、mm-hmm. um, can be viewed as you, yeah, being you know, dissent or、um, inappropriate or whatever, or, or other labels that can go with it. Right, or or can even make people around you feel insecure in some way or, or reflect negatively on their own way of doing things. You know. Especially if what what they're doing is not as common or accepted. So maybe they're doing the job in just the right way for them, but because they see somebody else doing it in another way, they start to doubt themselves, and then that can maybe you know lead to problems in their ability to further work.、Hmm. I think that there's a, a big conversation in kind of the academic world about academics, you know, working too much or working too many hours, and so there's a huge backlash against that. And now it's all about you know making sure you're not working too much and and definitely going off email at certain times of day and definitely taking weekends off and that actually doesn't necessarily work for everyone but it's what you really want is the accommodation of variation and the ability for people to sort of choose their own way of doing things but sometimes it feels like in certain workplaces there's such a drive towards standardization. 
Oh yeah. I definitely don't agree with it. So, uh, and, and I'm then going to take us all the way back to something that we began with, um, where so um, oh, I can't remember their Christian names, but so Brian and Levinson and their their kind of notion around face wants and, oh, yeah. and, po- and positive face wants and negative face wants. So whilst I think in in a way it's kind of quite reductionist and overly simplistic, if you think about some of the work, some of the discussions and narrative that's happening around the workplace, which is find out what you're good at. You know, mm. So there's a there's a phrase that often gets kind of touted around at conferences that I go to, which is find out what somebody is amazing at and then get out of their way. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and I'm like, well, that's, you know, that, that is in one sentence that's kind of summing up what Brian Levinson run about in terms of, you know, positive face wants being, mm. you know, uh, you know, attend to what I'm good at and notice the good things about me mm-hmm. and negative face wants around I want to be unimpeded in what I do. Right, right. Um, then in that in that one non-academic sentence, it just kind of it summarizes that mm-hmm. yeah. the, 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 those notions um, altogether. Whereas the standardization actually goes against both of those. You know, it, it fights against if you know it fights against both somebody's you know, recognizing an individual for what they personally bring, but it mm-hmm. also goes against, um, you know, giving them some freedom and autonomy to, to crack on with what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So one of the, um, uh, as, as part of my sort of prep for the podcast today, one of the things I, I, I wanted to explore is stance, if that's oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you define stance for me, if that's all right? Stance is a sort of display uh, towards a particular something. So it could be a, a display towards a person, towards a topic, towards a situation, towards, uh, you know, sort of th- just things in the social situation. And it's a display of what we, in interpreting an in- interaction, would take to be somebody's attitude or opinion um, or sort of general perspective. Okay. And so, how do people in how does how do I say people? I don't know if that's right. How, in, in 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 talk, how can stance be indicated? Oh goodness, lots of ways. So, uh, paralinguistics, like you mentioned before, all the sort okay. of like emphasis of words. So you can display a, a skeptical stance towards something by saying it, it by emphasizing, "Did you do that?" Right. It's okay. sort of a, a yeah. displays a little bit of a doubt. Um, or you can do it with particular words. So um, another way of, of displaying doubt would be to say, apparently, um, or, you know, even without the tone of voice, apparently, blah, 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 or allegedly, okay. right? That, that yeah. allows for some doubt. Um, and, of course, there are also nonverbal things like your, your facial expression, raising eyebrows, again, just in the world of, of skepticism and doubt. And yeah. this would be true for any kind of display of, of any kind of stance. And so is stance similar to framing in a way then? I think that the the way that you do stance can certainly accomplish a, a kind of framing. Yeah. Okay. Because and Framing yeah, is something sorry. that you kind of also do with others. So you can display a stance and then if somebody displays a similar stance, then both of you can frame the conversation as, you know, a doubt. Or if somebody can... Uh, display a stance the other person can display the opposite stance and now you've displayed this or framed this conversation as a disagreement agreement right okay yeah yeah okay and and i guess then i guess similar so earlier on i I asked does emotion shape talk or does talk shape emotion Mm. so i could then ask i could use that similar approach to a question and saying so 
I guess France, France, <laughs> stance yeah. can shape the frame as well as the frame can shape the stance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One, once you have a frame that's fairly established, or if you come to a conversation that's, you know, in a more institutional setting where the frame has kind of been given to that setting, then in a way it help, kind of helps you know what the appropriate stances might be, or what the available stances might be. Yeah, so one of the um, so the, an example of that I was thinking of was when uh, I was in a meeting and um, uh, what's the que- uh, the question was what so what work have you done so far? Mm. Um, and I knew the person hadn't done any work so oh. far. Yeah, so we were there to to talk a particular talk about a particular project, and there were actions that that individual had. Mm. Um, and the question was, what work have you done so far? Um, and the, the 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 presupposition within that then is that work has been done. Yes. <laughs> um, when actually there hadn't been. Yeah. And I was and I was just sat there watching it, thinking, I wonder where you're going to go with this one. Yeah. Because you know, to to say you haven't done anything is going to be really tricky. Yeah. It's just, it's similar to you know I guess while well, I'm making it because I'm saying it is similar to your cupcake example earlier on. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, the individual knows they should have done some work on it by now. Yeah, yeah. They haven't. So do they lie and, uh, or do they use um, strategic ambiguity? Do they give them some, you know, do they imply that they've done some work so far? Yeah, yeah. With things like, I th- you know what, that's some, it's something that's been on my mind a lot recently. <laughs> right? It's been, it's, been, it's been right at the forefront of my mind and, and I haven't quite reached a conclusion about, um, you know, where I want to go with it yet. So that's a good question. Yeah. Or or do they go? You know what? I, yeah, I haven't done nothing with that yet. Because <laughs> either way, if they get found out, if they get found out, and you know, if the if the answer, right. if the if the lie is good enough, mm-hmm. then they might get away with it. But mm-hmm. if you know, if they get found in the lie, that's one thing. Whereas if they, um, or but then if they admit that they haven't done anything either, then that doesn't work. You know? Right. Yeah. It's a gamble. <laughs> yeah. So I I had a an argument with my garage or they're not my garage anymore actually because I've refused to use them but I'm arguing with the garage about some repairs that were necessary on my car oh, dear. <clears throat> because I, I was listening to them thinking you're just that's just a load of rubbish mm. um and and eventually when I got to speak to with the mechanic who had apparently assessed my car and mm. there's me framing apparently assessed um <laughs> um we got to the the point of actually, no, the work didn't need to be done. My car would mm. still pass its MOT if the work wasn't done. Yeah. But everything was positioned as such a, um, this work must be done. You, yeah. you know, your car has to have the work done. Right. And my my repeated questioning of, so will the car fail its MOT if I don't have the work done? Well, it's one of those things that <laughs> it's really important. <laughs> oh to, yeah. You know that your car is safe and secure. And mm. I wasn't. Yeah, that's a lovely answer, and I agree with you. One of those things are important. My question was. <laughs> And eventually, yeah. got to the mechanic and said, "No, it doesn't need to be done yeah. to pass the MOT. We would recommend it, it being done, but it doesn't have to be done." Okay, well, don't do it then. Just pass the MOT and give me a car back. Thanks very much. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Um. So, I, I guess it's really complicated. Is where, <laughs> where my head's at now. Right. Right. Because um, I was going to ask, you know, I was going to ask, what advice could you give for, for you know, for people that, that are thinking about some of these aspects in the interactions that they have? <laughs> but we, we've covered so many different things and we've covered so right. much. I'm just, I'm sat here going, oh, that's just really complicated. Yeah. I um, mean, I, I think 
you know, in terms of just thinking through, reflecting on, you know, before you say something, how is this going to be potentially taken by somebody else? And then when somebody says something to you, reflecting on what, how could they have meant this, especially in difficult conversations, I think that can be really helpful because when you're in kind of just casual conversation, right, the, the back and forth flow doesn't allow for much reflection. There's usually things don't go very wrong, so you don't have to stop and reflect very much. But when you're having a difficult conversation, that's really the time when you have the space and people expect you to take the space to be thoughtful about what you're saying. And I think it's very, very worthwhile to do that. Hmm. And I and I guess in work, especially, there are lots of tricky conversations that can that can come up. Whether that you know, if somebody yes. is, yeah. somebody's, if somebody's offended you, somebody's not done something as well as you might like, yeah, uh, or in a way different to what you thought it was going to be or you expected it to be, yeah. And there's a little bit of a a push pull between the thing you can tell the other person wants from you and your own kind of need to display yourself as a certain kind of person and not just give in. Um, sometimes, let's say you make a mistake, you encounter people in organizations who just want you to like abase yourself with, with profuse apologies and so forth. And, and you, of course, may want to apologize because naturally you made a mistake, but maybe it's more important actually to move on and preserve the fact that a mistake is in the end just a mistake. And so you're not going to grovel. Well, mm. that's, that's a choice, right, that you have to make. So that person might be annoyed at you for not having properly groveled. Um, and maybe that causes you problems down the line. But in the end, you might decide, actually, I'm not going to waste any more time on this. I'm going to move forward and correct things. That's better for me. Because hmm. So even though I was, I was starting to wrap the podcast up and I'm now thinking I want to open another door again. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> So, so one of the um, so one of the things that, that that is part of the context that, in a way, sort of shapes the interaction. So, one of the things that that I see, and one of the things that I've seen recently, is where an organisation will use kind of the institutional power to um, affect interaction. So, mm. what, so I'll be more specific. So, the 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 promise of um, further opportunity as a way of moderating kind of behavior and interaction I find a fascinating dynamic mm. so the implication that at some point in the future you may mm. something may happen and then you yeah. modulate your um, interaction strategies off the back of that yeah. so you, you things are happening that you don't agree with or that um, uh, kind of in, 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 impinge you or in here in um, interfere with with what you want to do or those sorts of things mm. yet the promise of something in the future means that you don't say anything about those things yeah you know so you can see these these things not, maybe not like you know they're not big atrocities that are happening but just small aspects that are um happening i had a conversation with somebody really recently where i said well you know at what point are you going to stand up for what you think you know you're, you're telling me this is how you think and how you feel about these things that are happening mm. yet you're not going to do anything because you don't want to rock the boat mm. because at some point in the future you might get this right when you do get this do you want to do you want to be the person who doesn't say anything because they don't want to rock right. the boat yeah you know so you're you're not you're not in a managerial position now you potentially will be 
And if you comply with not saying anything now, when you get into a managerial position, actually the pressure will be even more on you to comply because you're part of the establishment now. Yeah. You know, so do you want to be a manager that, you know, almost by not doing anything now, you're, yeah. you're risking, you limiting yourself to doing anything in the future? Yeah. Oh, that's and, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. In, in what way? Go on, tell me but what well, you think. Well, just because, you know, a common thing that people will say is, you know, oh, it's the people who are in higher positions or in positions of power who have the ability to change things, who, who have, you know, they're sort of less held back by the fact that they're low status and their situation's more precarious, right? So mm. so really they're the ones who should be trying to sort of question stuff and challenge stuff. But actually what you're suggesting, and I think it's absolutely right, is that by the time you get to that point, you've bought into the system. And the system has sort of, I don't know, this is getting really like more Marxist than I meant it to, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's sort of like when you when you are in something, I think it's the same for relationships. Once you've, you've made a certain move and, and committed yourself in a certain way, then you've in a way ratified whatever the status quo was because that's what you've kind of tacitly agreed to. And, and if I get all Goffmanian, <laughs> Goffmanian um, with it, you know, so it's, once you've taken that line, yeah. that line, that line forms part of your face. Exactly. You know, it's, 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 exactly. it's there. Yeah. So the, 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 the psychological and social pressure on you and, you know, that you will put on yourself and others will put on you to conform with that line. Yeah. You know, is, 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 is really strong. So, it it, you it know, is. And it's, yeah. it starts, I mean, of course, people make impressions as soon as they see you. But I think it, it jumps to a, a next level when you start speaking. As, as soon as you start talking, you know, I, I speak, and you can hear that I'm speaking English with a particular accent. And automatically, there's going to be things assumed about me. Um, and if I started speaking with a, you know, high-rise intonation and ending everything as though it were a question at the end then you would form perhaps some other interpretation of me that might have nothing to do with, say, what I believe about myself or the person I'm trying to come across as. But once that particular performance has been ratified by enough people, it's very hard to break out of it if you want to. Hmm. And, and, and that... <clears throat> I find, yeah, so that, that, uh, I don't know what the right word is. I'm searching for the right word, which is why I'm pausing and hesitating. <laughs> I'm buying myself time by, by just right. waffling away. <laughs> um the 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 social dynamicness of face i find so fascinating in that someone else can put a face on you exactly exactly um you know uh, for for a long time i was you know i am i am my own person thank you very much I, i am who i am and i decide who i am and all that sort of stuff yeah um and just by saying all that sort of stuff at the end i know tell you that i don't think that anymore because right or don't you only think that anymore? Uh-huh. Because people will put me in a face. You know, yes. they'll, they'll, they'll put faces on me, and I'm like, whoa! I don't want that <laughs> face. I don't want that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I haven't subscribed to that or gone along with that. Right. Um, and again, sometimes it's not um, overt. It can be a covert. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be a covert um, placing of, of face. Mm-hmm. Even today, I was I was a. So one of the things I talk about a lot is how I like to be quite evidence-based in what I do, which is why I do a lot of reading. I, you know, I talk to researchers and like yourselves, um, you know, and, and I, I like to, to base a lot of what I do on evidence. And there was a tweet that I read today 
with somebody talking about um, it was a recommendation that someone had taken an evidence-based approach to something, and I read their article, the, the like the the source that they were quoting, and I was like, that's not a good critique in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I don't, you know, that's not an evidence-based approach. But an evidence-based approach should be like this. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute, how, how have I got to taking this? You know, as a because I've you know because I've part of my face is about this, and then I've right. seen this that says it is, and that's not. I don't agree with that, so therefore it's a um, you know, a threat to the to to that kind of aspect of my face. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I, uh, so part of me wonders, you know, do I ever think it? Sometimes is it, it? Do I kind of think too much? Do I read too much into it? <laughs> I I think that there's for for myself personally, it's much better to read too much into something than not to read enough into it. If you're if you're gonna go in the wrong direction go in the wrong direction of, of too much thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's, this is the, the thing that makes us, you know, humans as opposed to a, a sunflower. <laughs> Let's use it. <laughs> Let's use, yeah, we use sunflowers. Sunflowers are good. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so it just to so I said I was going to wrap the podcast up and then I opened oh, yeah. another door. So let's, <laughs> let's come back to wrapping the podcast up. <laughs> right. so, um, so is there... Um, Oh no! What I want to what the question I want to ask? Um, so, would would it be possible for you to, uh, or would you mind? There's some politeness rules in, in there. Um, putting together a, um, a a list of some reading that you might suggest people to do. So that can be kind of books or articles. And if you've got any any that you think are particularly interesting that you that you would like to share, then we can talk about that in a minute. But just from a because uh, one thing I do with each podcast is create some what's called some show notes and in the show notes there's sort of links to if we talked about particular research or we talked about particular individuals then then we'll put links in so we talked about Goffman and Brian Levinson um so everyone that we've talked about I'll put in okay, so everything great. that we've talked about yeah. I'll put those in but if you've got any extra that you think would be interesting for people then if you ping them across me on an email then I can yes. I can add them into the show notes as well absolutely um well, yeah, so there's a great book called Everyday Talk by <laughs> Jessica Robles and Karen Tracy. That's one, that's one book I'll yes. Have you got any others that you'd recommend? Um, I mean, off the top of my head, um, what I would recommend is just looking at Liz Stokoe's work. She's one of my colleagues, and she has various sort of books and articles, but she also has a website on a particular method that she uses, which she takes into organizations and helps them learn how to communicate better, and it's based on conversation analysis. So for people who are interested in sort of this perspective on talk and also how that could be applied, it's a great place to look at. Okay, wonderful. And that's uh, Elizabeth Stokoe, yes? That's right, yeah. And she's Leicester? No, she's at Loughborough. Uh, Loughborough, okay. Okay. Um, I will find her website then and I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, is there anything else then? Anything else that you're... On, on kind of emotion, talk, interaction, anything else that you're thinking, feeling, would like to say? Um, it's an area that I'd like to do more research on. So I'm actually working on potentially putting together a book proposal on emotion as an action-oriented resource. And so we'll, we'll see where that goes. And uh, I will definitely let you know how it's uh, wrapping up. Wow. So say that again, emotion as a... As an action-orientated resource. Exactly, yeah. So this is something um, some people and I put together a, a panel at a recent conference, and 
we got a lot of interesting things out of it, including some of the stuff I talked about on children kind of inter- uh, leaving space mm-hmm. for interjections during their crying. And so we're going to see if we can uh, turn this into a book. Why? Was that the conference in Belfast? That's right, yeah. Oh, I so wish I could have gone to that. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I was, I was, I was both enjoying and being jealous of the interactions that were happening, that were happening <laughs> on Twitter. I was like, oh, I want to be there, but this is really great. But I want yeah. to be. There. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just, uh, just as a uh, as a quick aside, not, and I'm not going to open another door. Have you <laughs> heard of a lady called Nancy Klein? Ah, uh, that sounds vaguely familiar, but I, I can't say. So, um, so she's written a couple of books, one called Time to Think and another one called More Time to Think. Um, but she, she plays with, um, she plays with conversation. Mm. So she talks about creating, um, what's called a thinking environment. And there are 10 principles of a thinking environment. But, um, one of the things that she kind of focuses on is getting people to think and, uh, speak individually. So, um, and, and not like all the time, but what she talks about in terms of being able to create environments where people can truly think is to give them freedom and space to think on their own. So uh, one of the strategies, so there's a number that she uses, but one of those is called a thinking pair. And the idea being that um, people, you know, you have two roles, you have a thinker and a thinking partner, and you have a question that you want to answer. And then the role of the thinking partner is to help the thinker think. So they make no audible, or say no audible, they make no contribution to the thinking. So they are there to listen, pay attention, make appropriate noises, um, (laughs) um, encouragers, head nods. So they use communicative devices, but but not to interject or to add anything. Or at least not explicitly. (laughs) Well, not explicitly, no. And that... and you and oh see now I wasn't going to open a door I was just going to tell you see, about it because I think because oh no. I thought you um, it sounds interesting and impossible <laughs> well so I so I think you might I think you might find her work interesting yeah 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 as that does a, sound as very a, interesting as a as a contrast because right, right. what she tries to do is is to break down those bits of communication right right um, now I I'm with you in that the the in terms of the place that people make noises the noises right. that they make yeah. the content you know will still signal something because right, right. You, you know you cannot not communicate if that's exactly yeah um but yeah i just thought you you, you might be interested in yeah, her work yeah. to, I, mean, um, I can imagine that'd be an interesting kind of exercise to see what happens yeah 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 okay all right well anyway let's wrap it up so thank okay. you so much jessica yes. for your time today thank you um it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast um yeah if you don't mind sending those links to kind of any books or articles that you recommend people um have a look at then i'll add them to the show notes but other than that dr jessica robles thank you so much for your time today it's been really really great to chat with you and i've really enjoyed it thank you thank you
Hello again, fair podcast listener, and you've made it all the way to the end of the podcast. Um, so I've got a challenge for you. Within that podcast, um, you heard uh, Jessica and I talk about things like um, how people leave gaps for speech, how um, how some of those rituals are there in conversation, how we you know, how people share the floor, the way we share the conversation between us. So go back and pick a ten minute section of of our of our conversation and listen out for them. Go listen out for the um, for the way that I leave space, or the way that Jessica leaves space, the way we support and encourage each other to speak. Uh, to speak, sorry. Um, so yeah, I thought it might be fun to do a little challenge. Go back and listen, see if you can hear the way that uh, Jessica and I kind of manage the interaction between us, because it's not done on a deliberate level, but yet we managed to do it anyway. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>